Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, numbers, puzzles and games. I'm one of your hosts, Alex, and with me as always is... Alaric Stephen. Hello. Hello. How have you been? I've been okay. Yeah, we... Christmas has happened. Yeah, we just had the Christmas episode. Uh, that was should be two episodes ago. We're sort of a bit out of whack with our recording. Um, yeah, and you're hearing it on an a episode. lag. Yeah, you're hearing uh, We're on a bit on a lag. Um, but we've, we've just had Christmas at this point. And I'm back in my flat where there's planes and all sorts of noise, uh, which is very concerning for podcast recording. But we do our best. Also, this episode, you may have heard it already, a sparkling new change to our sound quality. Say hello to yes. our new microphone. Well, I've got a, a glorious new microphone. So before I was using a, a small lapel mic, and now I've got this monster, um, a snowball. It looks like a little sentinel. Welcome to uh, 2011. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm there as well. One day, one day we'll both get to something a bit more high quality. But for now, it's perfectly crisp and uh, good enough. Right, maths problems, go. Okay. So, I've been thinking about coins. I think we've done quite a lot with coins on this podcast. So, imagine that you are working in a shop, and you need to give change, because someone has decided, for some reason, not to use contactless, and has decided to give you money. Well, you only get three a day. Sorry? You only get three taps a day on the contactless. So, maybe that's why. Wait, is is that true? I didn't know that. yeah, have you just been prancing through life not knowing this knowledge? Yeah, 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 you, you can only tap, you can only tap. Well, I think so. Anyway. I, I was not aware of that. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay, well. So, uh, someone gives you some, say, paper money, and you need to give some coins back. Um, what algorithm do you use to do that? So, is it always the greedy algorithm which is best? And by best, I mean fewest items hmm yeah my initial thought is highest denoms first but I'm sort of biased by binary because in that yeah. you'd always say halve it and then you'd, you'd look it up and then you'd sort of do the next thing that's half that and yeah and so, so if your coins were the 1p coin the 2p coin the 4p coin the 8p coin and so on powers of yes. 2 yeah I, I'm convinced that the greedy algorithm is best on that however I'm not so sure with our weird denominations. Right, so for those of you not in the know, the denominations in the UK are as follows. £2 coin, £1 coin, 50p coin, 20p coin, 10p, 5p, 2p, 1p. Yep. Yeah. This is I, s- similar to the US, except they have the quarter instead of the 50p, and they and everything, and it's notes beyond that. So, the coins that you've listed out are the common ones in circulation that you could use in a shop and people wouldn't raise an eyebrow. Yes, Um, you can use stamps as well, which are worth like 17p, but nobody does that. The concept of legal tender is one that people often mistake, and there are coins which are legal tender, but you wouldn't be able to use in a shop. And legal tender itself is not what you think it is. So legal tender refers to coins that if you have to pay a fine in court, they have to accept. When you're buying something in a shop, they don't have to accept your money. Like, it, they, they can choose whether to accept the deal or not. Them using the, the phrase legal tender actually has no bearing on the instant. 
so at the moment we are the, the one pound coin has just changed over into one which has 12 sides rather than being a circular one and a couple of months ago the old one pound coins were no longer legal tender right and so shops stopped accepting them now actually them not accepting them is nothing to do with it not being legal tender anymore they could stop whenever they wanted legal tender is only this niche um, definition in court yeah but money only has value if if shops are willing to accept it yeah, so I there's like guys to move not to spread rumours but I think that the banks are still accepting them so it's uses of money is tied to use by banks and if you can give a one pound coin to a bank clerk and they can increase the digital number next to your name in a database somewhere by one yep. then it's still a valuable valued coin essentially some post offices are accepting as well. The one in Worcester is not. I've tried it. And there That's are many, many vending machines that haven't been updated. So you can pass the buck onto some poor sap who's running a vending machine and not making much money. Yeah. I, I occasionally still get a one, an old £1 in change from shops when I'm not noticing. But they're, right. they're rare enough as an incident now. Okay. Um, so there are some coins which are legal tender, but you wouldn't recognise as legal tender. So... Um, Maundy money. Maundy money is given out in by the monarch once a year. And I think it's a linear progression. So on the first year of rule, they give out one bag of Maundy money. One um, bag? I thought they were going to give out one coin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, one bag it contains a 1p coin, a 2p coin, a 3p coin, and a 4p coin. Okay. It's not a sack. Well, it is a sack, but I imagine so, a sort of Santa like purse. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on the second year of rule, they give out two. On the third year of rule, they give out three, and so on. Mm-hmm. My grandfather collects coins and stamps and things, and he he has a bag of Maundy money. But they are legal tender. Now, you would never actually use, say, the 3p coin to buy 3p's worth of stuff, and what shop would possibly accept it? And it's worth a lot more than 3p. But in theory, you could redeem it for that value. Right, yes, I collect well i used to collect uh, sort of gone a bit off cash now but i used to collect the um novelty 50 piece so they used to do the the special printings of, of 50 pence coins that had f- funny things on the front different stuff and there's one that was only released in i think jersey and it's of the snowman which is the you know the, we're walking in the air like that one um yeah. and that's worth a lot of money because that's very rare so yeah things like that so, weird stuff, if you look at too, uh, too closely at currency, you find all the niche cases. But let's just say that you're using normal coins and avoid using the word legal tender. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, can we get some sort of proof that the greedy algorithm is best? And if we can do that, what I've been trying to think about is, given any denominations of coins, so you go to a made-up land where you can have any denominations you want, is the greedy algorithm always the best? Or can we get, come up with some base of coin units where we can find an example where the greedy algorithm doesn't work? I have one. Okay. Already. I have, I've come up with a terrible... Okay. It's a corner case. But as yep. always in mathematics, you start with these weird little corner cases and it hopes it should prove something. Stupid weird country where the only denominations of coin are... Two pence and fifty-one pence. Yep. Okay. And you are trying to give sixty pence worth of change. The greedy algorithm would go, "Oh yeah, just do the just do the fifty-one first because it's the largest." 
but then you're left with trying to make nine pence change out of only two pence coins. Okay. Which is impossible. So what were the um, what were the fifty-one and sixty-two? Sixty-two no. was the aim. Uh, no, no, no. So you're trying to make sixty. Yep. And you can only use fifty-one p coin and two p coin. I see. So by picking one of the coins, you make it not possible. Yes. I like it. Now, the this kind of is also you know a, a, a touch on the silly side because. I think any good denomination should probably have one piece in it. Um, oh, so you mentioned a silly country. Um, welcome to Britain pre-decimalisation. Before we got to uh, the current currency, uh, where we have one piece, two piece, etc., we had old money. Um, so things like farthings and shillings. And do you know the smallest denominations that were made? I don't actually. Okay, so a farthing is a quarter of a penny. Um, a quarter farthing is a sixteenth of a penny. It's a quarter of a quarter of a penny. Okay. Uh, the second smallest coin was the third farthing. <laughs> <laughs> so a third of a quarter of a penny, so a twelfth of a penny. So let's say that you're you're going into a sweet shop and you're buying a sweet which costs a quarter farthing. And you have a quarter, a third farthing coin on you. Yeah. There is no possible change that exists that could be given for that. Right, because there's no twelfth... Th- there's no thirty-sixth of a penny coin. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure how common quarter farthings and third farthings were, but it was it was a niche case which did exist in our currency. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be a... That, that would be an issue. <laughs> right, so perhaps we should define for the purposes of now, now that we've proven that there's some you can if the, if you have particularly bad denominations that you can uh, that you can get yourself into a corner with a greedy algorithm. Perhaps we should define the concept of sensible currency. Okay, here's a definition which, we could use. Yep, um, you have to be able to make every integer amount somehow. So, for example, on your currency of twos and fifty ones, there's no way to make one, and there's no way to make fifty-two. You can make fifty-two by just using lots of twos. Oh, that's true. Yeah, but you can't do any of the odds until fifty-one. Does that always mean that you have to have a one p coin in the denomination set? Um, how else are you going to get one p? Uh, yeah. Uh, or you might have halves, but then in that pay- in that case, that's you can just scale the problem up. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So once we have one, we can definitely do every denomination. Yep. So our requirement is we have to have a one p. Right. Okay. So in that world, greedy algorithm is looking pretty good. I agree. Because you just always try and make the biggest footstep you can towards the solution, and then just fill in the rest with one p's. I'm. I've been thinking about this problem for about a week, and it feels like that is the natural answer. And I, I've tried to construct so many examples where you can kind of trick it. I think having one really big coin, which does something where it slightly messes up your parity, like your two and fifty-two case, is the way. Right. I can't find a proof for this. Okay. So. Let's start with the first problem, which was British currency. Yep. 
we think British currency the greedy algorithm is best. I I posit that it is. That's the thing that we're trying to prove. Right. Yeah. So how would how would you go about it? So you just try and find a good counterexample. Literally, all you need to disprove it is a single good counterexample. That's the beauty of maps. Okay. And you've been thinking about this for how long? About a week. Trying to find um, counterexamples. Yeah, I, I haven't come up with any. I, it seems pretty robust. Well, as long as if you can prove it between one and a hundred, then you then you're done. Or, How so? Uh, because okay, yeah, you've got me there. <laughs> I can't I can't <laughs> prove that statement. Um, it seems right. It, it feels like things scale. We've got orders of magnitude here. So the situation with one, two, and five p's is the same as the situation between 10, 20, and 50 p's, which is the same as the situation between one pound, two pound, five pound coins, or five yes. pound note. Well, that was a five pound coin. Yeah, again, it's this whole <laughs> shop t- probably a... wouldn't accept it, but. <laughs> I think I've quite, but that was the one in which most people tried, right? Of all the weird stuff. The five yeah. pound coin was what a lot of people went and still at Smith and tried to buy Jeremy Clarkson books with. I think Scottish banknotes are in that category as well. Oh yeah, yeah. People always have a lot of trouble with them. They look good, but people don't recognise them as shop acceptable. The place I recognise them most from is in the back of a chippy, a fish and chip shop, um, of notes that they don't accept, which are pinned to the wall. Oh, I see. Oh, we'll take this this one time, but we'll just pin it on the wall and say we won't take another one. Yeah. Um, so, this order of magnitude thing, if we can show it for 1p, 2p, 5p, then exactly the same logic is going to happen just timesing by 10, and then timesing by 10 again. Yeah, so all we need to do is prove it between 1 and 9. Yeah. And that sounds like we can just enumerate it. Right, let's do it. It one. feels like all the problems that we actually managed to solve in this show are ones we can write a nice list of all the numbers. Yeah, <laughs> because you can work through it <laughs> easy. Let's go. 1p is just yep. made of a 1p coin. 2p is made of a 2p coin. 3p yep. is made of a 1p and a 2p coin. Yep. Your turn. You do the next three. <laughs> uh, 4p is 2 plus 2. Agreed. 5p is just 5. Well, hold on. Let's go back a step. The 4p yep. is the first instance in which there was potentially another solution. Yeah, 2 plus 1 plus 1. Oh, well, the 3p, you could have had 1 plus 1 plus 1. Oh, that's also true. And the 2p, you could have had 1 plus 1. Right, so let's have a bit of a think about this. Okay. A 1 and a 1 is always replaceable by a 2. True. And that's always a better solution. I, yep, yeah, I agree. Okay. Good. Keep going. So any time it is odd... No, that's not true. Never mind. Okay, so 5p is definitely 5p. 6p is 5 plus 1. Could have been 2 and 2 and 2. Yep. So all 2 2 twos can be replaced by 5 and 1. Um, well, if we look at the next one, which is the 7 case, yeah, that could have been 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 1, but that's yeah. less good. Instead, we can do 5 plus 2. So the solution for 7p is interesting. Because it kind of raises this idea of replacement. Yes. So before, we had... For the solution for 3, we had 1, 1, 1. 1, 1, 1. And we replaced it with a 2p coin. Or we replaced two of them with a 2p coin. 
Yep. And that seemed like a good and right thing to do. Yep. Um, in the case of 7P, you have you start with 7 ones, and yep. there must be an, a good order of replacement. Well, the order of replacement from the Greedy Algorithm is just do biggest first. Yeah. So, what do you, do, do you get the same solution if you start with smallest first? Like, you convert all the even number of 2Ps into 2s. Um, In this instance, you can. Because you start with 7 1Ps, and you replace yep. them into 2, 2, 2, and 1. Yep. And then your next order replacement is 2, 2, 1 gets turned into 5. I see what you're doing. Yeah, okay. And then you're left with 5 and 2. Okay, so let's try that algorithm on the next one. So for 8... <laughs> um, we'd put them all into twos. Yeah. We get two, 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 two. Yeah. Then our substitution for five doesn't work. So the algorithm doesn't work. So the greedy algorithm is still looking good. Yeah. Smallest first fails for eight. Yes. But if you did the greedy algorithm, yep. you go you five. Chunk one, out of one, five. One. Yep. And then we replace two of those ones with a two. Yep. And then you've got five, two, one. And that's a better solution. Yes. How about for nine? Nine so works gr- easily. Yeah, so trying both of the algorithms, greedy algorithm, we take out a five, we take out two twos. Done. Yep. The other algorithm, we'd go two, 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 one. And then we turn two, uh, two twos and a one into a five. So we get the same thing. Yeah. So both algorithms are fine on that. That's a situation in which both algorithms have the same solution. There are some in which they have different solutions. Yeah. And in the in the instance of the different solution, the greedy algorithm was better. So now that we've done one through nine, yep. can we say that that's true, therefore, ten through ninety? I think because we have a currency where each order... Like, each um, place in the decimal number it doesn't interact. We don't have yeah. anything like 11p. Each coin only cares about one of the places. Yep. So we've got the 1s, the 2s, and the 5s, which account for the unit place. We have the 10s, the 20s, and the 50s, which care about the 10s place. And we have the the £1, the £2, and then the £5 note, which care about the, um, the 100s place. Yes. They don't interact. So you get exactly the same pattern in each of those places. We've also got the 10, the 20, and the 50. Yeah. Pound note, I mean. And then... Uh, yeah. And I, d- I don't think we have 100, 200, and 500. But okay, this is good and interesting, and we have solved it for British currency. Is it safe to say? Hey! Yeah. Hooray! Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Feels good to solve something. A problem uh, which is, is related, it's called the coin problem. So, it gives the example of a currency where you have just two 2p coins and 5p coins. Um, it, it's kind of related to what we were doing earlier with the, the 2 and the 51. Um, there's a formula for which the smallest denomination that you can't do. Okay. Um, so, for example, uh, with a 2p coin and a 5p coin, you can't do 1p, you can't do 3p, you can do 4p by doing two twos. 
Yeah. You can do 5p. Yeah. You can do 6 because it's free twos. And after that point, because you can do 5 and 6, you can just keep adding twos to both of them to get any oh, other yeah. number. Yeah, that's good. So um, there is a smallest amount, sorry, a largest amount, which you can't do. And from then, you, you can do them forever. Okay. So for our, our 2 and our 51, the largest amount that you can't do is 49. Because you True. can do 50 by doing lots of 2s. And you can do 51 by just having one fifty-one, And from then you can keep adding 2s. Yep. The formula here uh, is called a Frobinus, Frobinus number. So if you've got two coins uh, with values X and Y, yep. then XY minus X minus Y. That is not so, what I was thinking it would be. I always thought it was just big take small. So yeah. what's an example where it's not just big so, take small? <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. It's okay if you don't know one. But well, clearly, Frobenius has proven. Uh, well, let's try doing um, that formula on twos and fives just to check it works. Yeah. So two times five is ten. Minus two minus five is taking away seven, so you get three, yeah. which yeah. is the, the the one you can't do. Uh, so let's let's pick any other numbers. So should we do three and five? Let's do our two and fifty-one problem. Well, that that one ended up being forty-nine again. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I just want to double check that this formula is correct. I think it's the twos which are the problem, which which give you the big take small. Oh, okay. So if we try three and five, we get times them together, we get 15. Taking away the sum of them, which is taking away eight, we get seven. Ah, which is larger than, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, th- there are a couple of famous examples of this. So the McNugget number. Six. Um, so <laughs> you, there are three different uh, denominations you can get boxes of chicken nuggets in. Yeah. Um, you can get them in six, nine, or twenty. Okay. I, I'm I'm not sure how I'll relevant. You. Uh, I I'm a vegetarian and I haven't been into a McDonald's in probably the last decade. Um, but I'm happy to believe it as well. Um, so this becomes a harder problem because you've got three denominations here rather than just two. Yeah. Like it's a problem which comes out in the real world. So other examples are think, uh, sports, things like rugby. You can get different um, numbers of points from. You get a three. You can get a five or a seven. Yes, and so those become your bases there. And again, it's it's the free number version. Um. Yeah. I. I think. Yeah. I think there might be corner cases in, in rugby where you get weird numbers of points. But I see what you're saying. Yep. Hmm. Okay. The initial problem yep. was, does the greedy algorithm always not work? Wait, does... <laughs> what were we saying? <laughs> does, is, is there situations in which the greedy algorithm doesn't work? We've proven that there is not for British currency. Yep. Is it conceivable to think of other denominations of currency in which it doesn't work? For sensible currency, in which you can always make... There's always a solution. Which most of the time means you've just got a one somewhere. In terms of the, yep. in terms of the, in terms of the denomination. And I don't know how to get into this problem. Okay. Are we willing to, to leave this problem? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I've been I'm thinking about beer. This is a very simple problem to state. 
if I'm really bad at pouring ale, and I pour it into a glass, and there's lots of what is called head on the top, which is the, the bubbles above the liquid, when those bubbles start popping, the top of the whole thing goes down, and the bottom goes up. But the bottom goes up faster than the top goes down. So what's up with that? And what is the rate at which the bottom goes up, and what is the rate at which the top goes down? Does it go up faster? There is liquid contained within the bubbles, but it takes up more space. As the bubble collapses, it's releasing the gas, and the liquid, which formed this thin film before, is now falling at the bottom. Yep. So it feels like as the bubbles go, they take up less volume. Yes. So this is something I've been actively trying not to think about because I think the solution is relatively easy, but I think that adding a time element and being able to model it would be would be a, would be nice. Yep. And then you can also take into account the the shape of the glass as well because presumably any any shape changes slow down the higher up the glass you go just because it well, gets wider or whatever. Uh, well, let's do it in a cylinder at least to start. Okay. So, you so we've got two in. volumes here. We've got the volume of the liquid, and we've got the volume of the foam. Yes, and you can reduce it to the height of the liquid and the height of the foam. Yeah, okay. There, are, I think there's a there's a, a good initial parameter, which is the, the, the volumetric ratio between bubble and liquid. Yep. Which we will call R. And R is the, 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 the volume of bubble divided by volume of liquid for any one bubble or any group of bubbles and so this the size of r is typically greater than one but so which we way could probably have some fun oh uh size of bubble divided by size of liquid okay yeah and that will typically be big we in in the real world that's greater than one but i'm sure we can have some fun playing around with different things if we get to the final solution yeah okay when a bubble pops, that volume B, uh, VB, the volume of the bubble, becomes volume of the liquid. Yep. So if we say, let's just do the, the start and end states. If you have a cylinder and you've poured in the ale pretty badly to the point where the bottom half is liquid and the top half is bubbles, then the final height is going to be 0.5 plus the bubble divided by this ratio. The bubble height divided by the ratio. Okay, yep, I agree. Which is the initial in, initial liquid plus initial bubble over R. Which for some values of R, yeah, it's probably going to be somewhere around 0.6, 0.7-ish. For, for, for typical values. So, I think, just to confuse things further, I think the reason that the bottom appears to rush up to the top is yep. because I think the bubbles get bigger as well. So I think over time, R increases slightly. I'm not convinced on your assertion that the level rises up faster than the bubbles go down. Okay. I kind of want to see it. Yeah. I've got some tonic water in the fridge. Give me a minute, I'm going to fetch it. Okay. I'm getting experimental on this. <laughs> this episode of Odds and Evenings is brought to you by Tonic Water. Tonic Water, for when you want something to taste disgusting. 
Seriously though, vodka and soda is way better than gin and tonic. Okay, I'm back. I've got props. Hello. I was just saying weird things about gin and tonic while you were gone. <laughs> um, I don't drink, drink gin and tonic, um, but I had guests around last night who right. brought tonic with them. I drink a Weekender, uh, which is a gin and it, gin and vermouth. Okay. That seems, <laughs> seems heavier somehow. Yep, that's my family. Um... Right, so I've chosen props. I, I wanted something which was thin, so I've, I've gone with a champagne flute to okay. maximise height for volume. Yep. I'm going to do some pouring. Okay. Do it badly. Okay, so... What did I you see? Um, the, it foamed up quite a lot. Yep. Uh, the foam went down fast from the top. And slow, the liquid slowly riz, rose, which is what I was expecting. Okay. So uh, the um, cylinder of foam decreases faster from the top than the bottom. Right, which is what you would expect. Yeah, because for... foam collapses into a smaller volume of liquid. I think this is what you would expect for values of R greater than 2. Because if you imagine that... For, sorry, for values of R, less than 2. Because if okay. you imagine that the final result... If you think about initial state and final state, right? So if initial state is half bubbles, half liquid... Yep. And then and then the final result is 40% air and 60% liquid, then yep. quite clearly the top has advanced to, to the bottom. C- can you give me a conceptual thing of what R is? At the moment I'm just thinking of it as a variable. It is the volume of the 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 liquid that makes the bubble plus the air divided by the liquid yep. that makes the bubble. Okay. So it's liquid yep. plus air divided by liquid. So if R was 1, that would be they take up exactly the same volume. Yes, which means no air. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's kind that of like L plus A over L, where L is the liquid and A is the air. So if that's 1, yep. then the only way you can do that is if A is 0, the amount of air is 0. Yeah, okay. So if R is 2, that is, in the bubbles, you've got just as much liquid as air. Yes. By volume. Yes. Which means the final result will be a three-quarters filled glass if you start by on 50-50. Yes. Okay. Which means that they approach each other at the same speed. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So for R greater than 2, that means that the bubbles are mostly bubble. Mostly air, yep. So as they collapse, they're going down very fast, but the liquid at the bottom is not going up very much. It's almost like you shouldn't really think about R now that I think about it. Hmm. And that and that and that what you have is you've got liquid on the bottom and on the top you have a mix of L plus A, liquid plus air. And the ratio yep. of those two is what's interesting. Yeah, I agree. Can we take these things to extreme? So if we had something which the bubbles were extremely air-ridden. Yep. Talking about the language of R again. Yep. It's when R is 100, say. Then the foam collapses away to almost nothing. Yes. And you have this very slow rise at the bottom. Yeah. I think so it's easier very to picture when you take it to the extreme. Yeah, which is what most things are, right? So that's pretty much what, like what champagne is. It's it just, just 
disappears. Yep. Or tonic water. It just, uh, yep. yeah. However, if you imagine a, a, the, uh, the opposite situation, in which the bubble's mostly liquid, then that's a situation in which the bottom rises faster. Yeah. Okay. So if you have your tar, which is bubbling, it's got some bubbles in it. Yeah. But the tar is most of the volume. The bubbles yeah. are going up slowly through it. Then the... Uh, no, it's not a good... You don't really have a foamy head. It's not a good analogy. No. But you just... Uh, like, you find this actually from, from looking at the ale, which is largely what I was drinking over Christmas. Um, yep. You can see there's actually quite a lot of liquid in there. Because you have the bubbles and you have quite a lot of liquid suspended between the bubbles. It's volumetrically quite serious. So, uh, while we've been talking, I've been modelling in my head a time-based solution to this. And uh, I think I've come <laughs> That's to... That's multitasking. I, I think I've uh, come you, to you're some... Just casually, you're just casually doing differential <laughs> equations in your head while you're maintaining a conversation. No, luckily, this thing is pretty simple. That you okay. don't think you need differential equations. I think the height of the liquid, height of L, yep. is equal to the initial height of the liquid, obviously. Yep. And then it's some function of rising liquid. Okay. Yep. Which is a which is a a, a function of time. Uh, height of L at in, at a zero, time wise. Yep. Yep. Is Li. Which is okay. the initial in, in, in the initial height of the liquid, which means that 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 this the the added liquid at time zero is zero. Your notation is infuriatingly close to mine, but different. Okay. <laughs> what you're using as subscripts, I'm doing the other way around. So I've got like I subscript L, meaning the initial height of the liquid. No, it should be ah. Oh. <laughs> it's it's L subscript I for initial liquid, and then we're going to have final liquid later. So that will be L subscript F. Fine, um, new page. Carry um, on. And then R at infinity, for some reason I've used R as the added liquid. I don't know why I did that. Is the ratio, right? Yep. Um, and we can define that however we want. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the L contribution in L and A. Yep. Now, we can define a time-based model however we really want. I think that this is a 1 minus e to the minus t situation. You think it's exponential? Well, you can do it however you want. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's a reality here, and the, the bubbles will pop in a particular rate. You can either have it so that, so that the, the bubbles go towards the final... Yep. Uh, at a linear rate, so the height just linearly goes towards it. But I think you um, can kind of tell on certain liquids, especially with beer, you're always kind of left with that little film, which makes me think that it approaches it. Thinking about it, exponential makes sense, because uh, each bubble has a particular half-life to it. So each bubble at some point will collapse, and let's say it's uh, randomly distributed. They, they've each got um, a half-life to them where, say that half-life is a minute, half of them would have popped after a minute. 
the number that pop at any particular time is proportional to how many are currently there. Yeah. So it's going to be exponential. Yeah. So you have a nice answer then of height of liquid as a function of time is equal to the initial yep. height of the liquid plus, open bracket, 1 minus e to the minus kt, where k is some factor that indicates how quickly the bubbles pop. Yep. Close bracket times all the liquid that was in the bubbles. Hooray! Yep. Cool. Yep. <laughs> um, now, there are interesting situations in which there's further more difficult more intricate versions of this model in which the volume of a bubble increases. Notice how R is barely in here, but R might actually be a, an, an, an interesting factor if that changes over time. Like, there's no room for R to change over time for, yep. the, for, for the bubbles to get bigger, which they in fact do if you watch beer, for example. The bubbles in the Ooh. head at the start are smaller than the bubbles at the end. Is that true? Yeah, so tr- tr- what, try it. What mechanism <laughs> does that? Uh, it's is it's it... the same mechanism as when you've got any bubbles and they pop and they join and they form a bigger bubble. Ah, uh, I see. So it's not that the bigger bubbles are more resilient and they're just the ones left after all the small ones have died off naturally. There is a merging process. I think it's a bit of... It might be a bit of both, but one would expect the larger bubbles to be less resilient. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's why I was surprised by your assertion. I haven't spent enough time looking at beer... And that surprises me. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's because we've moved on in our lives. We are whiskey drinkers now and things like that. There's also there's there's lots of good things. About it. I doubtless we will come across further beer problems. There's interesting things like, um, uh, you know, sometimes you see someone with very regular gulps and if they're in a, and, and, and it leaves this sort of marker on the on the side of the glass that's I knew where you were going with that. Yeah. I've noticed that as well. But if you have oh. a uh, but if you have a strangely shaped glass then those will start to get further away from each other. So uh, that's actually I'm glad you've had the same thoughts as me. I I too have noticed that. And so you can turn any um, shaped glass into a wandy uh, resonance pattern. Because okay. yeah. <laughs> you could construct the original shape of the glass by where these lines appear on a 1D line? Uh, yes, for small enough gulps. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah, so if you only ha- if you um, downed it in one, then you don't really have a data point. If you did it in two equal size volume bits, then you could tell the shape of the top half of the glass at the bottom half of the glass, or the volume of them, the volume but not... Them. Yeah. But as you take an infinite number of infinitely small sips you get perfect information yes you do so drink your beers slowly everyone actually sorry to bring practicality into this sorry to um to lightly sear us on the reality grill here but is if you drink small enough sips you won't be able to see the lines Mm. so your sampling is limited another thing that i often think about um with glasses let's let's say you have a, a normal cylindrical tumbler and it has some sort of uh, glass base at the bottom yep. with some thickness. Yep. If you filled it up to the top with water, then the centre of mass of it is quite high. As you drink the water, the level of the water inside the glass goes down, which would reduce the height 
of the center of mass. Yep. But when it gets to the bottom, when you've emptied the glass, it, it starts going back up again. Because at that point, the weight of the glass is contributing most of the weight to the center of mass. Hmm, potentially. It depends on where the initial center so of mass the of the glass is. Imagine that you've got um, a little bit of water, the bottom third of it yeah. is filled with water. The center of mass is going to be lower than if the glass is empty, for most glasses. The water is acting as a bit of a stability at the bottom. Okay. Uh, let's keep going. For each particular glass, there is some height of water which makes the glass most stable. And it's somewhere in between being completely full and com- being completely empty. That is not true for all glasses. That is true for all glasses in which the centre of gravity, or the centre of mass, is within the confines of where the water would be. If the centre of mass uh, is, true. is in the base at the bottom, then the most stable point yep. is no water. And that's why I've been sort of umming and erring through this, because in my head, that's true for a lot of time like that 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 was true for all tumblers in my head in the run up to this was that the the center of mass okay. would be would be would be somewhere at the bottom i it may not be true actually because there's actually a lot of glass up the side um yep. but it would go down you're right if the center of, if if it's pretty light and it's quite tall then the center of mass you'd expect it to be if if the base is negligible like it's so tall the base is negligible the center yep. of mass so would a normal be normal water glass yeah the center of mass would be in the middle actually <laughs> if it's so tall that the base is negligible, the center of mass always stays in the in the middle. No, it doesn't. It goes no, down it and back up again. Yeah, um, mm. yeah. Interesting, interesting problem, and it's made more interesting in your version <laughs> and not in mine, in which the center of mass is always in the base and it stays that way because we have nice heavy bases of glasses that have like lead in them or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Beer. Endlessly fascinating in hundreds of ways. Let's do the Lazy Susan problem. It's a puzzle. Okay. It's, it's a puzzle that I worked on a bit, um, probably a year ago, and I can't remember the intricate details of, so I'll be mostly doing it again with you. So, do you know what a Lazy Susan is? Uh, it's a, some kind of a... T- series of spinning discs or maybe just one disc that allows you to turn food on a table so it's close to you yeah yeah uh, it's usually one disc so we usually use one as a cheese board uh, again we've just had christmas so they're on my mind yeah um but sometimes uh indian restaurants in the uk have lazy susans in the middle of the table yeah uh, is a, is a way of spinning it around so people on the other side of the table can get to whatever nice piece is on there. Let's say you have a lazy Susan which is unconventionally square. So you've got a square that can rotate. <laughs> okay, it's a recipe yep. for disaster. Carry on. <laughs> um, on it, you have four pint glasses. Let's keep it on theme. Yeah. The glasses can be either face up or face down, so they're empty. Okay. In this problem. If at any point all of the glasses are the same way up, so all of them are face up or all of them are face down, then you win. Okay. And as soon as that happens, a little bell rings and goes ding, 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 and you know that you have won. The problem is you're blind. So you're a blind waiter. Okay. Each move, what the operation is going to be, 
you can touch two of the glasses and you can change either of their orientation or both or neither and then the lazy susan is rotated some multiple of 90 degrees by someone not you you don't know how many uh, multiples of 90 it's gone is this an uncaring someone or is this a is this a malicious someone well we're going to be working on the worst case scenarios so let's say it's a malicious person okay how can you get them all face up or all face down in a finite number of moves and when you say touch a glass it means you can detect its position yes in this initial version of the problem yes okay we're going to do a harder one in a minute and you can touch any two yes right so let's say that the lazy susan is always orientated so you've got a square with like in a normal orientation in front of you yep so it's, it's yep. always going to be rotated at a multiple of 90 degrees so let's say you always have uh, one in top right one in bottom right one in bottom left one in top left can I propose a change for the purposes of audible communication uh, it's a diamond are you going to go north south east west north south east west yes yeah. okay okay cool um Right, so it, initial conditions are, you, you know that they're not all up or all down, otherwise the bell True. would go straight away. Yep. Which doesn't really change much. I think you should probably just, is, is, is the multiple of 90, can that be 4? Can it go back to, you know, can it spin and go back to exactly where it was? Yep. yep. Okay, alright. So you should just do it randomly. Okay. I don't think there's a better solution than, than just picking two, especially if they're especially if they're, if they're being if 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 it was random. Ah, ha ha. Hmm. Okay. So, All right, what are you thinking I'm, about? I'm I'm getting somewhere. Um, yep. If you touch two glasses, let's say you touch you're you're sitting on the south side of the table. Yep. Um, and you touch west and south to start with. Okay. If it stays exactly where it is, the next time you touch them and flip them, but yep. you, you, you touch them, flip, you correct them, basically. You correct yep. two. By, by correct, what do you mean? Turn them, I don't know, up. Yep, okay. So that they're... And, and did, did you say there were people turning them back down? Uh, no, is only you ever turning them up or turning them down. Okay. What the other person is doing is, after every move, they're rotating the board, so you're not sure where anything is anymore. Okay, that's fine. Uh, right, so you you correct south and west. Um, if now then then in the next move there are four possible situations. There is okay. one in which it's rotated all the way, like it's done yep. one exact rotation. In which the next time you try and touch south and west, it'll, it'll they'll be solved again. Um, there's one in which south is now in west, and you have a new one on the bottom. There's one in which yep. there's the, the 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 other way around, in which west is now in south, and you have and you have a new one in west, or there's or there's there's one in which they're both new. Um, I'm going to propose something here. Yes. We don't actually care where they are, because where they are changes randomly. Yeah. All we care about is the structure of where they are relative to each other. So we know that there are two definitely next to each other, which are face up. Yes. So now, then, after that, you know that another one was probably also face up. Yes. Do you want to talk through the logic of that one? Because 
if the star if if you've turned two of them up, yep, and it hasn't gone ring a ding ding, then you know that there is at least one face down over there. But because we turned two of them face up from being face down, we know they weren't all down. Yes. So we know that there was at least one up somewhere else. So if you turned two adjacent ones up, you've definitely got a situation where it's you've got three up and one down. Because it can't be the situation where all four are up because it would have gone ding, ding, ding. We'd have already solved it. Yeah. So after doing two adjacent ones, you've definitely got three up, one down. Yeah. And then they'll rotate... And then you will just be given any two. But here's my here's my qualms and my problems. And I don't think the relative position is, is actually that important. Okay. If you are picking two that are next to each other, yep. then there are four possible two that you can choose. And you'll find the last one that you need half the time. Okay. And if you pick two that are opposite each other, there are two possible opposites you can choose. And you'll find the one you need half the time. So I'm not okay. really sure how this helps in this particular version of the game. So, the problem with your method here is you're talking about half the time. If uh, you've got an infinite series there, it's geometric. With every right. move, half the time you're going to solve it, but half the time you're not. So your algorithm only works after an infinite number of moves. It only works for the next step. It's only as a 50% probability for, for the next step. Well, after, if, it, if you get it wrong, then you're in exactly the same position that you were before. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got a half chance for the next step, and yeah. then you've got a half chance for the next step. Yeah. So, so it takes an infinite number of moves. I mean, you can no. do this move. Uh, you can do this problem in a finite number of moves. But it, but it, they, it gets okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, does does this involve game theory with the person spinning the thing? The, there's no psychology here. Okay. In each case, we're trying to get away from the worst case scenario. But they spin it. They do. Oh, you don't turn both of them. You turn one of them. Okay, talk me through. Um, because that's the only way out of this particular situation. Because if you turn them both, if you correct two of them, and there's one wrong one somewhere, then... No, you know what? I don't think there is a systematic way to do this, and I want you to to tell me how to do it, because... Frankly, this is all getting silly. So you <laughs> you you spin the the Susan. It gets randomized yep. every time. Yeah. So if there's one left and you're picking two, it doesn't matter which two you're picking because if the person just just slams it with their hand and it just spins like a wheel of fortune, then you're 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 SOL. Do you do you choose the two at the same time or do you choose them one at a time? Uh, so you have your two. You you pick which two it's going to be. Yeah. And essentially your choices are adjacent or opposite. And then you can feel each one, and you choose for each one whether it goes up or down, and then you move both of them at the same time. Right, okay. 
Talk me through this, because I'm not seeing anything other than a roulette situation here. Okay. So, let's say that you pick two adjacent ones, and you turn them both face up. And the bell hasn't gone yet. We're definitely in a situation where we've got three up, one down. Yes. Okay, let's say we take uh, two adjacent ones. Uh, No, let's do diagonal. We take two diagonal ones. Now, either you feel one that's face up and one that's face down, or you feel um, two which are face up. Correct. Now, if you feel one face up, one face down, then you could just turn the one that's face down up and you've won. Yeah. The other situation is that you have two that are face up. Let's flip over one of them. At this point, you're definitely in a situation where you've got up, up, down, down. As you go around the circle. Okay. Uh, Let's pick two adjacent ones in that situation. So, the possibilities are you've got two face up, in which case you put them both down and you win. Yep. Or you've got two face down, in which case you turn them both face up and you win. Right. Or you've got one of each. And in that case, let's turn one face up, one face down. Yeah. What's the situation we're in now? I forgot that you could win in both directions. Yes, this is the trick. So in this situation, if you turn one face up, one face down, you're now in up, down, up, down, as you go around the circle. Or in up, down, town, you could say. Okay, you could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, how do you win now? Oh, you just keep doing two. And every time you have one up, one down, every time you're in up downtown, you just flip them both. And then eventually, when you feel uh, two... Which you just two keep, are you picking? You, any, you just pick any two. No. No. <laughs> no, no. So you, you <laughs> want to pick two adjacents. No. Um, well, I forgot where we were. It could be. <laughs> uh, so, um, at this point, we're at, uh, in up downtown, as you insist. Uh, we've got up, down, up, down, as we go around. If we pick two adjacent, well, you've still got uh, the two that you didn't pick. One is up, one is down. You can't yes. win. So let me so to pick... clarify, up downtown is one where they're the same opposite each other. But they're... Yes. If at that point you take two opposite each other, then you can flip them both. So either you um, pick up two which are both up, in which case you put them both down and you win. Or you pick up two which are both face down and you pick them both up. Up, and you win. Right. So the trick was to get it into this state where you've got the opposites are the same as each other. And you know how they're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So in three moves, we can solve it. There's no infinite waiting for anything. Okay. Let me, let, so let, let, let me try this. Uh... Random, random, random. Uh, stick my hands out, south and west. I'll flip them both up. And the bell doesn't go. Okay, yep. So I know that we've got yep. three up, one down. Yes. Um, okay. Random, 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 random. Put my hands on two. Oh no, they're both up. So I turn one of them. Which two did you pick? Did you pick two adjacent or two diagonal? Oh, um... Because these are the fundamentally different moves. 
Right. Okay. So I've been picking adjacent the whole time. Okay. Right. Which got is, it. I think, why we got confused a little bit earlier on. Um, yeah. Because I, I think adjacent sort of makes more physical sense if you're blind. You don't want to be reaching across. Um, the the only way into this problem is occasionally doing diagonal moves. So at this point, where I've got three up and one down, what do I do? So you take two diagonal ones. If one of them is face down, then you turn it up and you win. Or if you if they're both face up, then you turn one of them down. Right. And so if you haven't won at that point, you know you have two next to each other and two not next to each other. Yep. So two next to each other are up, two next to each other are down. So yeah, going around that's... the ring, you've got up, up, down, down. Right. Okay. Now we're going to pick two adjacent to each other. Yeah. If they are both up or both down, then you can flip both of them and you win. Yes. The only other case is that you've got one up and one down, in which case you're going to flip both of them. That takes you to a situation where you've got one up, one down, one up, one down, as you go. Ah, uh, yeah. Room. Yeah. Yep. You're definitely in that situation if you haven't already won. Yes. Now if you take two diagonal ones, you can flip them both and you win. Yeah, that's four moves. So we did an adjacent move to get it into um, three up, one down. Yep. Uh, we did a diagonal move to take us to up, up, down, down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did an adjacent move to take us to one up, one down, one up, one down. And then a diagonal move to take us to all the same. So yeah, yeah. four moves. Four moves. Well, I'm very impressed. I thought this was probability town. But you're right. If you can win from both directions, then, then the geometry does matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a variation of this where you're wearing boxing gloves. Okay. <laughs> Um, the boxing gloves mean that when you're doing the flipping, you can't tell whether the the glass is up or down already. Right. So all you can do is change orientation. Okay. Amazingly, this is still solvable in a finite number of moves. Oh, wow. I know, right? <laughs> How many moves? I think it's seven. Okay. Ballpark pretty good. So you could also do this, that same technique without the boxing gloves and it would still work um yeah the problem is some of our bits uh we had cases where if this then this if this then this which you wouldn't be able to tell the different cases with the boxing gloves right, right. um but there are only a few different states that it can be in the cases are you've got three of one state and one of the other it doesn't matter which way around yeah you've got two adjacent are the same as each other. Mm-hmm. You've got two opposite of the same as each other, and that's it. So you've only got three cases other than actually winning. When you perform moves on these, you can work out which cases go to whichever cases. For instance, your there's the diagonal move where you flip both of them. That solves it if you're already in the diagonal state. If you're in the state where you've got three up, one down, or three down, one up, then it just takes you to itself, essentially. Because it takes you to the other version of that. Okay. If you're in the case where you've got um, two up, 
uh, next to each other and two down next to each other. Yep. Then it just takes you to itself. So everything goes to itself except the case where you've got two diagonal up and two diagonal down. So once you've done doing two diagonals, you know you're definitely you definitely weren't in the diagonal case. So you're in a, sol- a smaller state-based diagram. Okay. Right, so it's about it's about traversing um what are they called? Yeah, the yeah, state there's space. The, the, there's the state space, but it's a it's a, a discrete state space where it's all like yeses and noes and moving from yep. here to there and so on. It's not like a for those of you who did physics, especially material physics, K space. It's not like that kind of state space. It's more like one of those diagrams with arcs and nodes and moving from one to the other. Yep, I, I think the solution is you go diagonal, then adjacent, then diagonal. Because the adjacent uh, turns some things into the diagonal case. So you have to do diagonal again to check that you weren't in that. Uh, once you've done that, so diagonal, adjacent, diagonal, there's only one case it can be. And then you just flip one randomly, like any one of them. And again, you can be in either the adjacent case or the diagonal case. And so right. you do the same thing again. Diagonal, adjacent, diagonal. Right. So it ends up as seven with the first three and the last three the same thing, and the the one in the middle being a a transition away. So you, yeah, okay. So you could do that without boxing gloves if you chose to ignore your inputs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this problem is not solvable for five. For five so you've glasses. You've got a pentagon. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't think it's even solvable in the non-boxing glove version. You mean it's not solvable in bounded number of moves. Yeah, because you've always got the BOGO, like, randomly flip two of them. Yeah. I think there's a formula somewhere for how many you would have to be able to flip to solve N glasses. So we've been doing the case where we have four glasses and we're able to flip two of them at once. Yeah. But I I think there's a formula for, like, if, if you're doing five, then I think flipping three glasses at once is sufficient. Yeah, that was my hunch as well. So I think you need to always be able to any selection that you have has always got to be able to touch any other selection. Yep. No, that doesn't make sense, because with two and two you can have the opposite two, can't you? Mm. Um, it's about relations and connections and, and orders of separation from each other. Things like that. Good stuff. So, that's a relatively... So, that, that's a sort of famous problem, is it? Uh, yeah, I think it's called the blind waiter problem. Or the lazy Susan problem. problem. Well, that's a much better and more imaginative name than the other problem that we did earlier, which is the coin problem, which was fantastically imaginatively named. <laughs> I came across a, a glass Lazy Susan at an at a incredibly fancy takeaway Chinese restaurant, which I know doesn't make much sense um, as, a, as a concept. But uh, yeah, it was great. Glass, just spin it. Food comes close to you. Easy. No boxing gloves, chopsticks. At Christmas this year, uh, the cheese board was a lazy season and it currently didn't have any cheese on. And the circular lid to a celebrations box, I mean, how much more Christmassy can you make this question? Yeah. Um, If you put it in the centre of the lazy season and span it, then nothing visually happened. If you put it off centre and span it, it made a really interesting oscillating circle. I'm not going anywhere with this. It was just an interesting mathematical thing to see. What made an oscillating circle? 
so looking at the the circle of the celebrations lid yeah as it rotated around as it went round and round yeah it looked like a circle moving like translating rather than rotating oh i see right yes especially if it was upside down and you couldn't see the label on top yeah yeah it was uh, rotationally symmetrical hmm you guess probably get some spirograph stuff going on it's back to the cycloids that we were talking about before yeah, I think most things in life come back to spirographs in the end. You've just got to keep a steady hand. Yeah, so yeah. screw set theory or um, the geometry axioms. We're basing yeah. all of our mathematics on spirographs as uh, our axioms. Yeah, axiom one, We'll derive calculus from them. Yeah, well, I mean, so you can start by the motion of the planets is done in, uh, in, in uh, relative to each other as a, as a spirographic. And so if you start with Fourier decomposition, which is essentially what um, spirographs are, then... Uh, what what does that mean? What is that? Oh, um, a Fourier, de- a Fourier decomposition is, is um, turning waves into sticks that rotate, and then at the end of that stick, you've got the beginning of another stick that rotates, and you change the frequencies. It's um, Fourier transforms. Okay. You know about these. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, f- Compound pendulum. Yeah. So... The motion of the planets can be modelled, and this is why actually the music of the spheres worked as a method of uh, of of doing planetary motion, because from any rotating point of reference, like the Earth, um, which is rotating in, in a couple of ways, you can break down the motion of the planets using Fourier transforms, which are essentially just spheres within spheres within spheres. Okay, yeah. So if you're in spirograph maths, you'd probably start, and that would be your, your in into the world is Fourier transforms because it's based on circles and frequencies. Like the interesting thing about a spirograph is that the um, frequency of rotation of the gears, the teeth on the outside of the spirograph and the, the, the radius of the circle on the interior that you're sticking your pen in is different and has, and has some kind of um, interesting ratio between the two. That is what makes that interesting. And the same is true of planets. Like certain planets are almost exactly, and and unfortunately, this is this is what sets off sacred geometrists into into a gibbering wreck. But um, certain planets are almost exactly uh, an integer ratio of rotations around the sun, different from each other. Yep. Well, there are a lot of integers. I bet a, a small integer, like five fourths or something like that. Yeah. Well, like, those contribute most of the uh, the fractions. Yeah. Do they? Uh, yeah, they're quite dense. So you're, right. you're coming across halves and things a lot more than you are uh, for 80 wamps. It, it means that planets often make nice spirograph sort of heptagons and things like that. Um, mm. When it, in fact, it's just, first of all, it's not exactly correct. And and secondly, it's quite likely to happen because there are a lot of such ratios. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I've been working on some of the problems from previous episodes. Um, right. They, they kind of get stuck in your brain, and then you keep thinking about them. Uh, I've made progress on two of the things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, firstly, from episode three, last episode, um, we had those Conway's Game of Life towers. So, dragging it into the third dimension. Yes. And we talked about gliders. So, gliders were the spaceships that uh, move in a diagonal direction. Yes, yeah. Um, I had a whole lot of blocks at work, just little blocks that connect together. I thought I'd try making it. 
and the glider, every layer of it has exactly one of its blocks which is not connected to the main structure. Uh, what do you mean by not connected? Uh, so if you glued all of the blocks together, you'd have one which you weren't able to glue. Um, so if you then applied gravity to the situation, one block from each would fall. Would drop down. Yeah. Uh, assuming that if they're connected, then they can stay in the air if there's nothing underneath them. Yes. And if this tower got too tall, then the whole thing would fall over diagonally anyway, because it's going in a diagonal direction. So the centre of, of mass becomes not over the base. They are connected by an edge. So with each of them, I managed to use blue tack to get them so my hands weren't holding them up in the picture. Um, but it creates this kind of messy tower. Uh, yes, of course they would be connected by an edge, because if you actually look at a glider in, in, in the 2D plane, it's one of its corners is always touching. There's never one that has a full space of... Uh, Yep. Of, of, of boxes all the way around it, yeah. I tweeted out a picture of it. Um, so I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to this episode of, so that you can see what it looks like. It's quite pretty. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it. I'd like to see more structures, possibly through the medium of Minecraft, to see <laughs> these interactions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although um, Minecraft difficult, obviously, because you have to... Uh, you have to place a block next to another one and then and then do the removing so i guess you'd have to stand on top of it and and climb yeah with the with the objects yeah, yeah yeah um I, i've also done follow-up on another piece this one's from the christmas episode so episode two uh, we talked about advent calendars and we talked yes. about maximizing the distance to go from one space to the next yeah um i tried doing the three by three case as one that was small enough that i could just manually do okay um the answer, like just working through all the different cases, is non-regular. There are no lines of symmetry and there's no rotational symmetry. Wow. And it's really displeasing. So even on this smaller 3x3 three three case, it's, it's not what you would suggest. Like the duelists circling each other. Right. Or moving around like a knight. So for the 3x3, three three, it isn't yep. sort of top left, bottom right, top top, bottom bottom. Like you're not doing that. You're not doing that. It slightly beats that. So that method there with the duelists circling each other gets about 15 point something. I don't know, I had it written down before. This one ends up as like 17.2. And remind the listeners what the metric is that you're using. Um, So it's the distance from the centre of each square. So each square is one unit in in distance. So to go from the centre of one square to the centre of the next square would be a distance of one. So is that as the crow flies? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So we're not doing taxi cap metric. So uh, for the record, this method w- with the three by three, which does the longest, is um, middle, top left, bottom right, top middle, bottom left, uh, top right, bottom middle, uh, center right, center left. Wow, that's hideous. I know, right? <laughs> Um, and so our, we came to the conclusion that the 5x5 five five was probably w- way too hard. Um, and I think that that we've got this smaller one, which is irregular. I, I think we're probably right that the 5x5 five five is, is just something even more hideous. Yeah, I think that the hideousness has thrown off the fact that I thought that there would be two classes of solutions. Um, or rather, sort of two classes of problem space. Uh, much like a Rubik's Cube, it's you know ones that have a center square and ones that don't. Yeah. 
I thought that might be interesting, but given how ugly that one is, I can't imagine that, you know, the 4x4 is going to be any better. No, no, I don't think you're right. Sorry, I do think you're right. Yeah. So what did we talk about today? So first was the change, the greedy algorithm. And we talked about the coin problem. Yes. Um, I think we did quite well. So we solved it for modern day British coins. We worked out the greedy algorithm definitely was the best. And we yep. ruled out this uh, lowest first algorithm. Mm-hmm. So we found a case where it didn't work. Um, where It's still an open problem whether you can do it with any sensible unit. But we found units of coins which don't work with the whole 251 thing. Yes. So there are unsensible currencies that are incapable of reaching every single number. And more than that, uh, there are numbers that they can reach but don't reach if you use the greedy algorithm. Uh, yeah. Is the very first example you gave, the 251 one. Right. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So I, I think we did that quite well. What score would you give it? I'm going to give us a seven. That is low, <laughs> considering how well we did. Well, we we didn't do it for all different numbers. No, actually, like all you different did coin systems. You did come to us with two problems at the start, and we only solved one of them. Yep. So perhaps you're right. Perhaps we only yeah. Okay, I'm going to give it a well argued. This is a seven. <laughs> we didn't do as well. We didn't do as well as we thought we did. So the next problem was my beer problem. I th- and I think we did fantastically well. I have down here a formula written out on the table, uh, on a piece of paper on the table, I should clarify, that is, you know, almost a decent model for the motion of beer. Yeah. What we found was our formula for the height of the liquid. We didn't get round to, and it's, it's, it's a trivial change, but we didn't get round to a formula for the height of the whole thing, which would have yep. also been interesting. But, you know, I can get to that. It's just... It's different, but uh, but but doable. So yep. I'm going to give us a big fat nine on that one. Okay. Yep, I agree. I I I will go nine as well. It's um. I never thought about it being exponential before, but it makes sense that it would be. I mean, um, it doesn't have to be. It's probably not, but it's close enough. It, it's not quite a ten because w- the whole merging of bubbles thing, where the uh, R changes makes it harder yeah but i I think this is is a good enough model we did it in the cylindrical case as well yeah but in fact most beer glasses are reverse trapezoid uh and then the lazy susan problem yeah which you explained in fantastic detail and we did get there in the end although i initially refused to believe that there was a good solution to this (laughs) even though you normally have a good solution i'm not sure why i was so adamant that i was correct uh, and that there wasn't a good solution, but it's because I forgot you could win in both directions. It, it's a problem I got off a Reddit thread, uh, which had problems that people put, which they found the most surprising. Yes, yeah. This is beyond standard stuff where, you know, you go to an open day at a, at a university or a college, and they'll be like, oh, it's the birthday paradox. <laughs> you know, I, I went to a lot for maths. I nearly did maths. Um, I even went to the open day for uh, Cambridge maths actually, and um, yeah, and they would show you, they would show you the birthday paradox and they would show you the uh, you know the, what's the other one the the one with the goats and the cars they would do that one as well 
Monty Hall. Yeah. Monty Hall, which we will never do on this show. We right. will never do the birthday paradox, and we'll never do the Monty Hall problem unless we can come up with some nice twist on it. Yeah, some variation. Okay, yeah. you've committed us. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not above doing either of those things in my everyday life as a maths teacher. Right, but you know, this show is unabashedly difficult, and those yes. things are very entry level, and we will not stoop to such entry level things on this show because everybody knows about them already. Yeah, I, I spend my life teaching 16 to 18 year olds where a lot of it is the introduction to nice mathematical concepts. The target audience of this podcast is meant to be people who perhaps did a, a maths or science degree a couple of years ago, maybe a decade ago, uh, but like doing some sort of recreational maths. We intentionally use proper language for maths here, that yeah. there's no uh, babying the vocab. We did a couple of pilots of this show, and at one point I nearly said, could you explain to the audience what an integer is? And at that point yep. I thought, what am I doing? This is a, There's enough shows like that out there. So this is, uh, if you're listening to this, and you and there's some stuff you don't understand, and it's and you haven't done uh, a maths or physics or, you know, related chemistry, engineering degree yet, don't worry. This show is targeted at people who probably know how to do a volume integral, or something along those lines. Or, you yep. know, they know, they'll, they'll know various things to do with factorials and, and, and they've done multivariate calculus and, and stuff like that. So it's fine. But if, you know, if you have done all that and you're enjoying the show, thank you for enjoying the show. Uh, you're our, directly our target audience. And uh, we appreciate you very much. Hey, we, we appreciate all of our audience. But um, if you are, don't have maths in your day-to-day life and you're enjoying this little slice of maths that you wouldn't normally get to have... Uh, you're exactly who we're aiming for and uh, we hope you're enjoying the show when I think target audience I basically think you Alex so you don't work in education anymore or ever and you work in a job where you're not using your education directly but you like playing a role with maps it brings you back to a time at university where we just played yeah and also one of these days we'll talk about it on the show probably but we also designed a self-sustaining life raft system for when World War Three breaks out. <laughs> Which I still have yep. the diagrams for somewhere. Anyway. Uh, they're on Google Drive. I've still got access to them. The eco ship. Did you? One day. You saved them? Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> One day. We'll sail off into the, the doldrums, which apparently aren't, aren't as nice as I thought they were. And we'll, uh, we'll live indefinitely, and this show will go out every single week um, from the ship. <laughs> And we'll slowly sink into madness, and you'll hear us slowly <laughs> sinking into madness. Yeah, the, it's true pirate radio from the 70s. Yeah, exactly. It's good stuff. Ah, uh, well, uh, that was a very good episode. I was very pleased. And uh, we will see you next time. So, contact details. Uh, you can... Uh, our, our front of house, as it were, is our Twitter. So, at oddsandevenings... O-D-D-S, A-N-D, evenings. Um, so we often tweet responses from listeners um, and things on there. That, that, that's our main way to contact us. Uh, I also have a website, alaricstephen.com. So A-L-A-R-I-C, step hen.com. And you can find me on Twitter at speakmouthwords. Additionally, there is a, a poorly maintained Facebook page as well. If you want to go find us on Facebook. Uh, if we can get some people on there, it's probably going to make us more likely to want to update it so it's a bit of a network effect problem but if you can get on there on the facebook that'll be great 
Uh, thank you for coming along with us. I think this has been our best episode to date. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.